Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker, and I'm joined on today's show by John Harney. Hello. Uh, so today, John and I are going to discuss some of the games we've been playing, as well as my recent research trip uh, to the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Uh, but before I got to that material, I thought I'd pass it over to John, uh, who has been playing the most recent Wolfenstein game, Wolfenstein Youngblood. So, John, how is that game treating you? Uh, I really like it, um, is the short answer. It's an interesting kind of... I was talking to someone about this recently, because I'm currently playing this game as well. I, I promise this is related. Uh, <laughs> called Days Gone, <laughs> which a friend recommended to me. Um, and Days Gone is this game that, that, that Sony really pushed really hard. It's like an open world GTA type game with like zombie type things, zombie type enemies. And um, and all the reviews were like, eh, it's fine. It's been done, you know. Um, and I'm playing mm-hmm. it going, no, this is good. I mean, it has been done, but, you know, it's good. And Wolfenstein Youngblood is similar in that I feel like the reviews are like, yeah, I don't, yeah, it's okay. There's almost this kind of, you know, I wonder if Youngblood could have lived up to New Order, really, you know, or mm-hmm. not to New Order, to um, to the last one, um, New Colossus. Thank you, to New Colossus. There's a lot of there's a lot of new and young. I know, I know. Wolfenstein these days. And we talked about New Colossus quite a bit when it came out, and as you remember, Bob, like that had that that game had such a an amazing exploitation feel, mm-hmm. um, and Youngblood kind of has that. Uh, but Youngblood's interesting like there's definitely so in the game you play BJ's twin daughters they're teenagers the game has somewhat jarringly skipped over a whole bunch of stuff so um, really early in really early in the game an NPC or I I think maybe one of the girls mentions offhandedly oh yeah BJ he's the man who killed Hitler like oh Uh okay Uh, the US is free um, but then you go to Nazi, Nazi-controlled uh, Paris. Basically, BJ's mix, missing, and you're going looking for him. And mm. um, awesomely, the two girls get together with Grace's daughter. Grace is the the Black Panther oh, yeah. type character from New Colossus. Grace is now head of the FBI, um, and Grace's daughter is kind of like a tech whiz type. You know, you know, she's the she's the next uh, set kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And they all they all steal a heavily armed FBI helicopter and I guess fly it across the Atlantic and uh, go to Paris. Um, mm. And that vibe is. And for the listeners, uh, the first kind of rebooted Wolfenstein game was set in early 1960s Europe, and then the second one was in early or actually late 60s America, and then this game is set in 1980s Paris. Very early right? 1980s. Yeah, it might even be 1980 itself. Yeah. And this is the kind of crazy alternative history setup for the Wolfenstein series. Right. And thanks for, yeah, I forgot the basic, the basic underlying premise. And so it's, um, how do I put it? They're kind of going for that. It doesn't feel as crazy as New Colossus. Although in fairness, New Colossus went insane by the end of the game. So who knows where it will mm-hmm. go. But what's interesting about it, I think, from our point of view as well, is how it is decided where Paris has gone. So Paris has kind of become... The kind of one of the things that New Order did really, really well, the first kind of remake game, was that um, it, it, it brought Spears' vision of Berlin to life, like what Berlin was supposed to look like as a Third Reich improved and improved and improved. That's what that first game did and this terrifying idea. And that aesthetic has kind of spread to Paris now. What's also interesting is apparently Europop's techno craft, pre craft work type 
stuff and lots of neon graphic design was apparently destined to be a thing no matter who won World War Two, uh, <laughs> which you know is really interesting, right? It's this really kind of weird um, mashup, but I think it works really well for the game. And funnily enough, the game this is some meta history now. It feels. I don't know. It really feels spiritually a part of the classic Wolfenstein ethos and idea, even more so than the previous two games did. Is in what is what a uh, point of order? Yeah, John. sorry. Um, what is what is the classic Wolfenstein? Ethos? Well, good question. So maybe maybe I'm guilty of having my own little classic Wolfenstein ethos. But like when I think of Wolfenstein 3D, you know, just before Doom comes out, right? And like first person shooter, but it's all about you know. Um, the action is tight and you're kind of dealing with a highly stylized Nazi enemy that quickly becomes completely over the top Nazi enemy. And that's what Youngblood feels like to me. Like Youngblood feels kind of like a, this sounds so weird, like a transactional shooter, like get in, shoot the guys, mission ends type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is why I think, by the way, I'm playing it with a friend and I don't know if it would work as a single player game. It would actually be kind of, I think it might be a frustrating game, single player, but co-op, it's just a very, it fe- this is sounds such a weird thing to say. It feels more like a shooter than the previous games, which is bizarre because the previous games are very, very shooter heavy. Um, and I feel like you're you're meeting, you know, there's different tiers of enemy. Whereas way back in Wolfenstein 3D in the in the 80s and 90s, you kind of had the Nazi guy in the in the SS Brown. Then you had the guys in the blue who had different audio cues, and they had these kind of little mm-hmm. ranks that would be represented visually. And right from the start of Young Blood, that's that just feels almost more hierarchical in terms of the enemies you're facing right right off the bat. Mm. Um, and then pretty early in the game, you fight a boss who's basically wearing the same kind of power armor. that. So the, the girls are both wearing power armor that is clearly of the same technology as BJ's and New Colossus. Um, and you, you you face an enemy doing that. But it, And maybe it's just, maybe I want to feel this nostalgia, but it really gave me nostalgia of facing Hitler at the end of Wolfenstein 3D. In his mm. mech suit, so I don't know. Again, mm. may, maybe that's just maybe that's my personal bias, but it just feels like I don't know. This feels like a very action first story as a bonus shooter, old school shooter with mm. modern trappings. That that's how Youngblood mm. feels. And then stylistically, it's kind of this hybrid post occupied France, the twentieth century rolls on type thing. It's really interesting. So is there any kind of narrative ephemera going on? Is there any kind of uh, pickups that you can get? Uh, audio diaries? Yes, or, tons. Um, advertisements mm-hmm. or um, any kind of, uh, oh, what do they call it? Uh, environmental storytelling. Yeah, there's there's on. a lot. And, it, and, and one of the things when you're playing co-op is I actually need to log in myself so I can just read these things uh, <laughs> at my leisure. There's lots of readable stuff you can pick up like all the time. Um, and then uh, one of the nice things in the environmental storytelling that I like is that it's just a common mechanic in the game where you can there's there's old style computers everywhere like IBM PCs mm-hmm. basically and mm-hmm. if you can find a floppy disk somewhere in the in the area you can bring it to that machine and it will read the floppy disk for you. Mm. And usually this is, it gives you a code for a door, which is another thing, right? Like in, in Wolfenstein 3D and later on in Doom, you had different types of keys, different types of doors and all that stuff and the kind of the whole secret area type thing. Um, so you bring a floppy to a computer, you put it in and it says, and it's, it's usually got some storytelling to it. Oh, you know, the classic, my favorite, you fool, Lothar, here's the code you keep forgetting, you know, <laughs> like things like that. <laughs> um, but that that's a standard thing that just happens all the time in the game. It's, it's, it's repetitive and there's lots 
lots and lots of stuff you can pick up. And then there's lots of little visual storytelling, um, like uh, like calendars and, you know, like photographs up on the wall and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So what about France itself or Paris, mm-hmm. I guess? It's set exclusively in Paris, I guess? Well, so far, I'm not that far into it, but um, you have a hub similar to the previous games, like the kind of the submarine in the previous game. Mm-hmm. But um, the hub is effectively in the sewers of Paris. But there's a strong kind of sense that the, um, you know, the French, the French resistance has continued to fight kind of thing. So they're under real, oh, they're under okay. real pressure. And it seems like at the point that you're at the point that you're coming into it, they're really feeling pressure from the Nazis and the Nazis are pushing hard for like the next step in Paris kind of being Nazified and that BJ mm-hmm. BJ had come over and it has something to do with that. Um, but so far, I only unlocked the hub like kind of an hour or two gameplay ago, uh, ago of gameplay. So it's not clear to me yet. And you can kind of roam around the area and then um, traveling the metro of Paris is a big deal. So that's kind of how you navigate. And so they lock off. You effectively go up to the map and it says, okay, which part of Paris do you want to go to? If you're doing this mission, you should go to this part over here. If you're doing the second mission, you should go to this part over here. So it's kind of, it's open world-y. Do you know what I mean? And that, op- mm-hmm. that open world is kind of, this is Paris. So it's 1980. So this is this is a Paris that's now been occupied for 40 years. And the resistance right. is really feeling the pressure. But at the same time, there seems to be kind of an infrastructure there that you plug into. And so there's lots of NPCs that, so, you know, as is as typical, these missions are now unlocking NPCs who are slowly beginning to become a bigger, bigger part of the... Uh, the kind of storyline. Right. I think that's the most interesting part of the previous Wolfenstein games has been the inclusion of um, localized NBCs. You know, for instance, mm-hmm. in New Colossus, you had uh, the characters that you discovered uh, in a skyscraper. I think it was in New York. Um, that yeah. included Grace mm-hmm. uh, and her partner. And then you went down to New Orleans, which had essentially been turned into a massive ghetto. And you discover whole new characters there and i think you know that kind of band of resistance gets together on the submarine and you can kind of investigate them you right. can kind of talk to them you can pick up their audio diaries their documents their ephemera and i think it really helps to build out the world and i think it makes it much more interesting than it would have been had you just been fighting in different locations mm-hmm. and just killing nazis in different you know kind of dystopian versions of the us so i'm glad to hear that that kind of carries over a bit to this version of 1980s Paris. Well, it, it is interesting, though, because I think, and I remember we talked about this at the time, and the History Respond episode on the game kind of talks about this. So you get a character like Grace, you know, uh, who is kind of clearly mm-hmm. a kind of a Black Panther um, analog, you know, type figure, type character. But the way that those characters are woven into the story became really important. I haven't yet seen if that's going to happen in Youngblood because at the moment I'm Mm -hmm. mostly kind of rescuing people who then return to my hub and become mission givers. Mm. So I kind of want to see... So, for example, is it like the Division 2 where they are just mission givers and that's it? You never really deal with them again. Or is it going to be... Are they going to take on really important roles in the narrative the way that the characters in New Colossus did? I don't know yet. I I, I went to How Long to Beat... I googled How Long to Beat Wolfenstein Youngblood because I'm an old man and I need to know these things. (laughs) <laughs> and I was shocked. And I, I, I've heard some, I've listened to, listened to and read some coverage of the game, but I had somehow missed out that it's like a 25-hour game. Oh, my god. Which gosh. was very surprising to me. And so I'm kind of like, okay, I want to see where this goes because at the moment the game is strongest when it's kind of a co-op fun shooter. So I'm curious, what's that going to mean for the balance 
of the story, you know? Right. Like, is it going to become an environmentally driven story completely? I don't know. Because um, hmm. the game is weird. Like, it's 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 it's, it's it, it, there's a lot of waves involved. So, like, in previous Wolfenstein games, you would kill the officer to stop them calling reinforcements. Yes. But now reinforcements are coming. And until you kill the officers, they'll just get big, higher and higher in level. So I've had, mm. I've had to deal with a lot of flamethrowing Nazi mech suit guys. Um, and it becomes very hectic and very tough. And one of you will often go down. And so a lot of the gameplay is kind of retreating and letting the other person revive you. And it's just, it's a very effective co-op shooter. And I, I'm waiting to see how that plays out into the philosophy um, right. of how the game works. Um, but they're throwing a lot of collectibles at you. So hmm. I guess I'm kind of waiting to see, like, so will, because I think this did happen in New Colossus, will cutscenes and NPCs and even collectibles and stuff, will all that stuff start to merge together later or not? Yeah. So maybe the next podcast I can tell you guys, I'll know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might we might try to put this into an episode. I'm, yeah. I'm curious to play it myself. I haven't had a chance yet. But, you know, I am, I'm really interested to hear that the game is so long considering that it's a little bit cheaper. It's kind of a, a forty dollar game, I think. Right. I think so I think if you buy forty dollars, I think you that you, your friend can play with you, and you for thirty, right. 30 bucks so, you get your own copy. Thirty bucks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's really good value. I mean, if you're putting it into an hours played proposition, but for old men like you and me, <laughs> that's that's kind of a negative, honestly. I mean, I, I have uh, how long to beat, which is a website that tells you. Uh, how long it usually takes a player to beat a certain game. And I have that bookmarked on my web browser. And I check it all the time because I want to know exactly how long it's going to take me to get through this game so I can kind of schedule it out, you know, because I can play maybe an hour, hour and a half Mm -hmm. each night if I'm lucky. It's it's kind of replaced, uh, you know, reading before I go to bed. <laughs> I, it's now it's now I play a, I play a game for an yeah. hour before I go to bed. No, and I I have a weird like Marie Kondo type thing where like I deleted Assassin's Creed Odyssey this week and it made me sad, but it also liberated me because I would turn on my mm-hmm. PlayStation and I would look at it and go, oh, I want to play that game, but the way my current gaming habits are working, we're talking weeks weeks before I get even to like the DLC that's so interesting to me so I just deleted it and instantly felt release you know and I remember years ago listening to podcasts and their guys going I'd be fine with a game being eight hours and I would scoff at them you know you jerks you know if I'm paying 60 bucks I want (laughs) but I was at grad school then and now I I, I, you know it's a different world but other things like people would say oh you know like the weapon the weapon mods and young blood it's kind of limited I for me it's perfect it's about as deep as I needed to get um, another another thing about it is it's 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 a level game like you're con- it's a level up game you're constantly leveling up and acquiring mods for your gun and you're collecting silver coins everywhere that can be used to buy mods for your gun and it's just mm-hmm. so it's tickling all my all the urges all my dirty division 2 style loot shoot urges but it's not like but it's not demanding enough of me so like I could see how it could break if you're the kind of guy kind of person I should say who has time to spend like 8 hours a day playing this game you could burn out in 2 or yeah. 3 days but I could probably I'll probably be playing it till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That might give me enough time to, to get the game and start playing with yeah. you at some point. It's it's a good co-op um, game, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds great. Um, so I guess let's go ahead and transition to talking about my recent trip to the Strong Museum of Play, which I was at last week. And the Strong Museum, it's in uh, Rochester, New York, so um, kind of northwest, upstate New York. Uh, right across the lake from, I think, Toronto, I guess. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I don't know uh, the geography <laughs> of the north of the United States that well. But 
Now, the Straw Museum of Play, uh, it specializes in what they call play studies. So that includes things like the histories of toys, analog games, and digital games. And the museum is, uh, it's a museum, so it's got a huge kind of uh, exhibit gallery of different toys and games and video games. They've got an arcade on site. Uh, and it's essentially like the best children's museum you've ever been to <laughs> in your life. It's like the Super Bowl of children's museums. Uh, but then uh, upstairs, they also have a manuscript archive. And they're pretty substantial uh, manuscript holdings related to toys, uh, analog games, and then what I went there to study, uh, which is digital games or video games. And I got a uh, fellowship to go there and look at their archives related to the history of historical games. So basically, I'm attempting to do a long project on the history of the games we usually cover on History Respawn, you know, looking at historical games going back to the late 70s, uh, 1980s, early 1990s. Um, and just to give you a sense of what kind of files, what kind of holdings are there, and the ones that I looked at, um, there are manuscript collections that include the uh, papers of the Minnesota Educational uh, Computing Corporation, uh, aka MEC, uh, aka the makers of the Oregon Trail, uh, and a bunch of other history education games from the 80s and 90s. Uh, there's also the papers of Joe Billings, who was the creator of SSI, uh, Strategic uh, Simulations Incorporated, uh, which were the makers of dozens of computer war games, including the Panzer General series. Uh, then there was the papers of Danny Button Barry, and she was the uh, maker of Seven Cities of Gold, which was a game that was a a uh, huge influence on the first Civilization game. Seven Cities of Gold came out in the uh, mid-1980s. Um, then there was the papers of uh, Bruce Shelley, uh, who was a developer who worked at Microprose, uh, was kind of the earliest playtester of a lot of Sid Meier's games uh, and helped to develop uh, Sid Meier's Civilization and Railroad Tycoon uh, and then also Colonization. Uh, and then he went on to make uh, Age of Empires uh, at Ensemble Studios. And then there was the papers of Will Wright, and uh, these included his notebooks related to development of SimCity, and then also The Sims. And then I looked at the papers of Don Daglow, uh, who created what many would consider to be the original God game called Utopia. And then after that, I looked at the papers of uh, Jordan Mechner, uh, who is a game developer, uh, created uh, Prince of Persia, and then also uh, was the main developer uh, for The Last Express, which is kind mm -hmm. of a famous uh, historical uh, computer game from the late 1990s. Um, and so this was a really cool opportunity. I hadn't done any research on the history of video games. I also hadn't done any research... Uh, related to the 1970s, 1980s, or 1990s. You know, my you know traditional academic work is related to late 19th century, early 20th century. So kind of jumping forward about 80 years was a really interesting experience. And I feel like I learned a lot about the business of making games and then also why developers pursued historical games, at least in the past. And so hmm. I'm hoping to take a lot of those manuscripts and kind of work it into either a set of articles or maybe even a book proposal about mm -hmm. the history of 
digital uh, history games. And of course, the the Strong and a lot of other libraries have got really good archives related to analog history games as well. Um, you know, kind of board games, war games. Um, but I, I'm, I've been kind of interested only in the digital games right now. I feel like if I opened it up to analog games as well, I, I would never finish any project. I would never finish articles. I would never finish uh, a book. So I'm, I'm hoping at this point just to keep it to digital games. I was going to, I'm going to ask an inside baseball question and be rude, like in a starting question. I think about this a lot when it comes to games. Of course, Bob, we're both very interested in games, but and we're ac- we actually, in our specialties, we talk about similar time periods, kind of early 20th century. What's it like, you know, effectively studying games that you remember? And I think there's, there's a couple elements to this, which is one, we're not used to dealing with stuff that we kind of experienced, even as children, though, perhaps. But also, like, the next wave of scholars who look at this stuff, and I mean the people 20 years younger than you and me, mm-hmm. won't have had the experience of like installing these games off floppy disk and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like, what's, I mean, how does that feel when you're in there looking at this stuff? And do you think it's going to affect the way you write about it or think about it? It is odd because so much of the work that I was doing, it felt like I was at one, one point, you know, kind of pulling the curtain behind, uh, you know, a lot of the games that I used to play and kind of learning more about them. But then also I was really concerned about being a little bit too personalized in my focus, mm-hmm. you know, kind of focusing on the games that I had played or I had direct experience with and ignoring just about everything else. <laughs> and, you know, it could be the case that, as you say, uh, you know, later scholars would have a much different perspective, right? They might not be interested as much in Oregon Trail because they never played it, right? right. Or they might not be as interested in Panzer General, but they might focus on a different topic. Uh, but I would say that the papers there... Uh, are of a breadth that you could do many different topics, many different perspectives. Um, For some of the papers and for some of the digital files that they had on old floppy disks, actually, as part of the archive, uh, some of those files hadn't been accessed by scholars yet. And that was definitely the case with Bruce Shelley's papers. Um, I went to the archivist, and I I think Bruce Shelley's collection is maybe three boxes, which is nothing, right? right? I mean... When you and I are going to an archive, if we hear that, uh, you know, the collection is only three boxes, that's like, you know, two hours of work, basically. Right. Um, But these three boxes, the last two boxes were filled with old floppy disks. And the archivist said that nobody had gone and looked at these uh, since they had been uh, filed, you know, since they had been, um, you know, put in the collection and since they'd written the finding aid. And so we opened those up, you know, using uh, kind of a sophisticated computer program at the Strong and discovering that that was the collection, right? The three boxes, two of which were filled with floppies, the floppies contained all of the type of documents that I was really interested in. And so if I hadn't pushed for that, if I hadn't asked to look at those files, um, just because I was super interested, because I was really focused on Bruce Shelley's career... Um, you know, I, I would not know. You know, it didn't say in the finding aid that you would find X, Y, and Z, right? right. It's, it's just like, ah, oh, this is a floppy that is labeled civilization. That's all we know, <laughs> right? There's no list of documents within that. And I, I asked the archivist, you know, because I was old, you know, I'm an old man now. I asked her, well, you know, why don't, why don't we just uh, open these files and then print them out and then put them in the boxes and then we can have more boxes. Right. And she was like, well, we want to keep them kind of in their original state. And, 
you know, but on the other hand, you know, if if an archivist or um, you know a researcher comes by and just looks at those boxes, maybe even just looks at the finding aid without yeah. asking for the boxes, they'll have no idea yeah. that all of those files are there. So I would say it was a real learning experience, um, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, manuscripts with archives related to really, really recent history, you know, uh, in my lifetime and thinking about some of the pitfalls uh, on a personal level with that, you know, kind of worrying about uh, confirmation bias, et cetera, even more so than I do with, uh, you know, earlier archives, but then also worrying about, oh, well, am I even aware of the entirety of this collection? Right. Because one of the great things about studying kind of the distant past, you know, say 100 years ago or so, which is what I usually do, um, the documents you got are all listed, you know, they're all quick to read. Um, and you know what's there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they've been in the archives for a very long time. People have looked at them. Many historians have looked at them. Many archivists have looked at them. Um, but with these more recent archives, you can't take that kind of collective knowledge for granted. Right. And it, it it's just fascinating. And like dealing with media types and all kinds of things. And if they're not getting lots of scholars, or at least... They, somewhere like the strong is going to get a pretty diverse array of people coming in to access the materials. Yes. And so it's very, very different from going to like special collections, University of Chicago or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And in 2019, how do you access a floppy? I mean, is it just a floppy drive with an adapter <laughs> that plugs into a modern computer? How do they do that? I, well, so I didn't get a good look at the program uh, that the uh, digital archivist was using, but essentially what he did was he uh, had a way to put the floppy disk uh into a separate drive, plug that into the computer, and then from there, he did what he called an imaging of ah. uh, the contents of the floppy disk. So it wasn't necessarily opening the file, right? but it was getting an image of what the open file would look right. like. And so then that way we could kind of quickly go through the documents huh. rather than kind of laboriously converting them into modern software. Um, so I'm not a technical whiz at all, as you right. can tell from you know the output of history respawn. But uh, it it worked pretty well, and you know there was a little bit of uh, what I would call artifacting with some of the documents within the floppies. Mm -hmm. You know where it, you know it's kind of like, oh well, there's just this random square, and then there's like 17 black squares in a row, but then there's words, right? So <laughs> it looks a little weird. It doesn't look like it would, uh, you know. At, at, at the time, you know, if it had been opened, you know, with a regular floppy disk drive. Uh, but still, I was able to get a whole bunch of information uh, from those floppies and uh, much more than, you know, was suggested by the finding aid. <laughs> Not that I want to complain about the finding aid. You know, those are super helpful. Right, right, right. Uh, but it is amazing to me that uh, given the fact that those floppies are there, uh, you know, you really have to be curious to want to go, hey, can you take a moment to open this up for me and then you know, all of a sudden it's like it's like discovering a whole other set of boxes i think if you were to take bruce shelley's collection and there were floppies with some of the other collections but right if you were to take bruce shelley's physical collection the three boxes and if you were to take the contents of the floppy drives in those last two boxes and print them out i'd say the collection would be at least seven boxes yeah uh, so, I mean, it makes a substantial difference. Um, but it's it was really useful, I think, to go there and get this week-long experience, not only from the perspective of starting this new project, but then also 
kind of learning how I might do historical research with digital archives in the future. It's just funny to me because it just feels like you know, it feels like you're you're in an archive and you go to get a box and while the archive is picking up going, oh, weird, there's three more here. You know, that's like, you know, that's interesting. Why don't you, you know. Uh, yeah. and what, and what, how, what kind of stuff did you see? So, like, what does, um, I feel like when I'm working here on various things, like I have all these sketch pads that nobody will ever care about where I'm writing out weird, my own weird notes to myself and I have shorthand and everything else. So, like, what, what you know, what are the did you see notes for some of these classic games and how did they compare with what the game turns out to be like what did you see any of that kind of like in I'm, you must have seen some of that in process stuff right right there were some in process documents so for instance uh, Bruce Shelley's papers the floppy disk drives includes a lot of what they call uh, design portfolios or design notebooks um, which would kind of relate to specific games and games that were published eventually or some that were never published. Um, there was a really interesting Bruce Shelley project in which he was working on a uh, space exploration game uh, in the early to mid-1990s, which I'd never heard of. Right? Hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of notes related to that. But it was some of the other collections, you know, particularly with the uh, Minnesota Education uh, Mech uh, collection. There were far fewer design documents than I was hoping to find, and you know what I would say with some of those collections, with things like uh, the Mech collection, with the SSI collection, uh, with some of uh, uh, Danny Buttonberry's uh, papers, was that they were not as full. A manuscript collection as I'm accustomed to. So when I mean full, I mean when I usually go and do historical research on something that happened 100 years ago, you get these files that are really well grouped towards a particular topic and they include every scrap of paper related to that topic. So they include not only kind of records of minutes, but then also say correspondence uh, related to that topic. Or perhaps, if you're really lucky, uh, you can get a diary or journal entries related to that topic. These files were much more focused on business paperwork mm. and then promotional material for published games. Mm. So you're getting a substantial slice of the history of that topic, but you're not really getting kind of the full fullish picture that you would hope to get kind of a, a personal view of the research behind it of the development and then also some of the correspondence mm -hmm. uh, that would go around it so in a way you're getting a good sense from some of these manuscript files you're getting a good sense of how the sausage was made right but you're not necessarily understanding why the sausage was made or what people thought about the sausage while it was being made or after it had been made that's if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting because it makes me think of, um, I, I was going to ask you that about, because you mentioned looking at kind of businesses and stuff and business practice or business history rather. And this this happened in sports history, even though mm. there was a heavy kind of theoretical component from the very beginning of sports history with Alan Gutman and people like that writing about it. You can find a lot of work talking about, you know, business models of 19th century Major League Baseball, right? Cincinnati Red Stockings. You can find a lot of stuff on... Um, you know, English soccer in the 19th century and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I think part of the reason is that it's giving people something to latch on to. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you can build an argument around and build a paper around. But I also think there's a certain element there um, 
I wonder from your experience, like, so do you feel, depending on what way this goes, if you were to write about the business side of it, for example, would that be a sense because it kind of almost is something to latch onto, like I said, or is it you kind of have to follow what the source material is giving you? Because it's kind of hard to construct that cultural impact thing. Yeah. I, I guess you just go to lots of newspapers and you do that side of it. But so do yes. you know what I mean? So it's like, the, like, do yes. you feel, I don't know, do you feel like you're kind of being funneled towards looking at the business side of it? But then even if that were to happen, I feel like you could do different things, right? Like, I don't know. How do you feel yeah. about all that? You know, I do. I, you know, obviously, I don't want to try to make a story that's not there. So I'm not going to do a cultural impact uh, of a game where I don't have the necessary archives or necessary documents, manuscripts to back it up. Um, I, the Strong is also really good. Uh, the Strong Museum is also really good in its holdings with uh, video game magazines, computer game magazines as well. So okay. I can always go back there and kind of do some of that uh, cultural impact work. But I'm much more interested in using the manuscript documents, mm -hmm. right? I want to use the archives. Um, you know, I feel like, I don't know how you feel about this, John, and I don't want to cast aspersions on anyone, but <laughs> I have a very um, skeptical view of the utility of looking at newspapers and magazines when telling uh -huh. stories like this. Uh -huh. Because the thing is, is that when you're looking at newspapers, magazines, published materials, and particularly promotional materials, in a lot of ways, you are telling the stories that the publishers, the game developers, want you to know. Right. Whereas if you are looking at the archives, if you are looking at the documents, you can tell stories that you know, are sometimes inconvenient for the people involved. Sometimes they tell the stories that nobody wants to know, right? Or right. nobody wants you to tell others about. Right. So those are the kind of things that I'm interested in. And as a historian, that's the kind of stuff that I feel like I'm really good at. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, kind of cultural impact work is not useful. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm planning on doing a little bit of that with relation to this project. But I feel like because these archives haven't been written about that much, I think it's worthwhile to really dive into the manuscripts dive into the archival material before doing the yeah. uh, kind of uh, you know newspaper uh, magazine work. Yeah, I mean, I've done I've done quite a lot of newspaper work, and I think I mean I see stuff out there, especially in games history. Sometimes I would consider history, sometimes I wouldn't, and <laughs> sometimes it's a telltale sign of the, maybe the writer's background when they're just going, oh, and the magazines say this, and there's no real investigation of what that means. Yes. But it's yes. a killer because, you know, you do want to get a sense of, like, what's being said, but all you're getting is what those people said. So it worked for me in my book, which is, you know, about baseball and Taiwan, because I was talking a lot. The first three quarters of the book use this newspaper published by the Japanese imperial authorities, basically. And the last quarter of the book uses a newspaper published by Chiang Kai-shek's government, which is you know, by the government. It was a government-owned paper. And so what the people who controlled those newspapers wanted to be in the conversation became a part of my analysis. And mm -hmm. that, that was great. That worked for what I, for what I was doing. Um, but like you say, but that, now that means you're talking about a certain, you're talking about a certain argument. That, you yes. know, you just you just might not want to. And especially I had the advantage of, you know, I could refer for my book. It's, it's 20th century baseball in Taiwan. I could talk about Japanese imperialism and I could lean on all kinds of other things like here's what's been done about the history of Taiwan and so on. Video games are a little bit different unless you find a way to to loop it into like the Carter administration or something, which I don't think you're going to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it's a different thing because you, ha you have to set a lot of stuff out and. 
and and before you know it, you're trying to, you're trying to do too much stuff at once, and it just wouldn't yes. work. Yes. Because yeah, yes, the magazines yeah. just don't they just don't do that for you. It's just yeah. And of course, video game stuff is so super interesting. Because video game culture has always been so interestingly. It's not like counterculture the way punk is, punk was, but it's some, it's its own thing in some way. Or it's super commercial and corporate, and it just becomes one huge job just to even just make those distinctions without without boring your reader or driving them away, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, you know, I just got done with research. I took thousands of pictures, so I still need to sift through all of this stuff. But there were some storylines that I'm interested in following up um there's some games unpublished games developed by uh mech uh, creators of oregon trail that i'm interested in kind of talking a bit more about um there was also some of the business documents that were really interesting uh in particular uh the jordan mencher papers uh those related to the development of the last express uh were really full in kind of a classic sense right they they included things like development documents, but then also correspondence, uh, and then finally uh, research that uh, Metzner and his team did uh, to look at The Last Express, which is about um, kind of a last journey of the Orient Express in the run-up to the First World War mm-hmm. in the summer of 1914. Uh, so he did a lot of research on the Orient Express, went to do uh, uh, um, kind of on-site uh, investigations of the old train cars, and then he also paid researchers uh, to go out and look for kind of historical ephemera, magazines, newspaper, uh, documents, etc., that he could use uh, in the storyline and then also uh, just as kind of uh, environmental storytelling during hmm. the game. And then on top of all of that, there is a really interesting set of uh, files at the end of that collection that relates to the marketing uh, and PR work related to that game and a lot of correspondence about how uh, the game didn't sell as well as they had hoped. And the developer, uh, Mentioner, was working with uh, Broderbund uh, Studios. And Broderbund, really famous uh, educational game developer, uh, computer game developer. They created uh, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Uh, they had all sorts of different titles, but uh, they had really kind of put in all their chips into The Last Express. And there's been so many recent studies, I think, with uh, kind of pulling the curtain back uh, in popular uh, video game media about, you know, where the things went wrong with uh, this game from Electronic Arts or where things went wrong with uh, publication of No Man's Sky. And I, I think that that story can be told with The Last Express, with this relatively well-known game that came out over 20 years ago. So I'm kind of interested to get to that. Uh, one quick thing I would say about, uh, you know, kind of not having the fullness of documents that I would like. The thing is, is that because these archives are so recent, I can still have a reasonable expectation of finding some of the people behind these documents and talking to them directly. Hmm. Uh, so... I mean, that kind of brings its own difficulties, its own uh, perhaps uh, troubling elements. But at the same time, I think that gets kind of that uh, personal side of the story where in a lot of these manuscript collections, it's a lot of business, a lot of paperwork, a lot of legalese. That's fascinating. That's I feel like I just that that, that, that feels liberating. So I just kind of I just kind of feel like you know you're in grad school and you're like i'll uncover 
this thing that nobody's nobody's found, which doesn't actually happen very much in our in our regular research. We tend to have an idea that somebody hasn't had. That's kind of where it goes. You could be coming out and saying, well, this is how such a thing happened and such a thing happened, and then tie it back into the, the bigger idea. It all sounds really mm-hmm. exciting. Good. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been kind of liberating. You know, I think, as most of the listeners know, I, I gave up my tenure-track job in European history, and... You know, it's it's a little bit distressing at the one hand, you know, because I'm looking for a permanent position. At the same time, I'm no longer beholden to the kind of schedule and expectations of being a European historian. And so I feel like I can just do whatever the heck I want. Um, <laughs> and so that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, and so studying historical video games is hopefully going to turn into a longer term project as long as I can uh, get funding. So when you're when you're the thirty years from now, when you're the next Bill Bryson, so how did it start? Well, you know, <laughs> I quit my job. <laughs> uh, Very in keeping so, with the history of tech as well. Yeah, so, uh, I yeah. quit my job and decided I'd figure it out. You know. Yeah, I I had this YouTube channel, <laughs> so I <laughs> exactly. This was before um, Mixer. We're going Mixer. That's right. The world at that point. Yeah. That's that's right. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I was following following in ninja's footsteps. Um, So uh, I thought we would wrap things up by talking about some of the other non-historical games we've been playing. And you you kind of already did this with Days Gone, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering, are you you playing anything else besides Days Gone and Wolfenstein? I'm in a weird vibe where I'm playing little bits of lots of things. I'm still playing, playing a lot of League of Legends recently um, because the international group stage just started yesterday. And I got all excited about Dota a month ago um, and then realized I would probably never play Dota again because I don't like being yelled at by strangers. Um, and I went back to League of Legends and everyone's being really nice to me, which is weird uh, and, and, and pleasant and enjoyable. And for those who don't know, Dota 2 is what's called a MOBA, five versus five, attacking um, attacking each other to try and destroy each other's base. There's lots of other stuff to it, but people have a rough idea what Dota is. And League of Legends is the same basic idea. So bits and pieces of that. And and then I, I have a game I haven't started yet, but I'm really excited about called Outward, which was mm. on sale recently on the PlayStation. And it's apparently it's a very janky indie Western style RPG with survival elements. Um, mm. So I'm in love with it already. I'm almost scared to play it in case I don't like it because it just sounds perfect for me. <laughs> So we'll see we'll see where that goes. Oh, and I played No Man's Sky for five minutes of the day, and that game has become fantastic. Oh. I wish I had time to play it, but I just don't. Yeah, I... Boy, I have a complicated feeling about No Man's Sky. I know, Sky. I was kind of setting you up there, because I, I like we, hearing you, you talk know, about No Man's Sky. I, and so the backstory here is that I bought No Man's Sky full retail when it came out, and I loved the first, well, I guess, six or so hours. And so I really pushed John to get it too because I thought it was awesome, and he, John got it. Mm-hmm. And then there just wasn't much to the game. But now, what is it? Two, three years later, they've really added a whole lot of extra content. They've really filled out the narrative. They've added all sorts of things like base building, mm-hmm. uh, multiplayer, um, you know, kind of emergent storylines, and, and they tweaked a I, lot of stuff as well. Like they've, yeah, they've, yeah, and I. And I just can't bring myself to get over my initial reaction to the game. I still, I still kind of actively dislike it because my initial investment of you know whatever sixty dollars was really met with 
a lackluster product. And even though it's gotten improved since then, I'm still, I don't know, I'm kind of holding this personal vendetta against the developers for (laughs) that initial uh, reaction, that initial contact. And um, it's it's my own private silent war that I'm waging. And uh, I'm hoping that it'll it'll come to an end and I'll I'll be able to come back to the game but not right now I just I, that, I'm still a little bit angry. That's such an interesting thing though because it's it's funny I'm trying to get to a point I have a I have a backlog that is is just ridiculous and I'm trying to get to the point where I treat games like books which is I haven't played I haven't played that in a long time or I never played that. I got it one day, you know, like a book. I got five books in the bookshop, and I read two of them immediately, and the other three I knew I'd read someday. And then one day I do, well, sometimes. And, and like with games, <laughs> like I go back and play it, and I'm getting a bit better. But it's really funny because I do find myself caught into this thing where, like, if the game, if the game doesn't catch quickly enough, I, uh, I think the giant bomb guys used to say or still say they bounced off it. Like if yeah. I bounce off a game, I rarely come back. And it's funny because. In my brain, I still have this sense that I can play all the games. And although it was mm-hmm. never, it was never actually true. I do feel like ten years ago, and and it wasn't. Or ten years ago, I could kind of, I was playing enough of the games to feel like I was basically playing all of them. And now that's just not possible. And it's not just a question of my time and how much money I have to, to 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 buy games. I think there's just more games and and of a mm-hmm. very high quality as well. Um, and it's just impossible, and I can't, I can't shake that idea that I need to be. And it, like, where, where do you land, right, between um, staying current? Because frankly, I think you and I are both interested in kind of staying current. We'd like to have a sense of what people are playing and what they're into. How do you balance that with, like, you know, my tearful deletion of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is like a, a moment of personal <laughs> liberation? You know what I mean? It's all a weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be at the point where I spent half an hour looking through my Steam queue or my Steam list of installed games and not actually playing anything and just being anxious about it. Like something is something is wrong. Like why can't we go back and play No Man's Sky? But we just it's 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 almost like nope. I've made the decision. I've moved on. I'm playing my yeah. new thing. I don't know. It's weird. What are you well, playing? Well, so I played Spider Man for the PlayStation Four, and I don't think I talked about it last time on the podcast and that was a ps4 exclusive and it kind of tells a a pretty standard uh spider-man story in the sense that you've got most of the main players in the narrative you've got uh, most of the enemies main enemies uh from the comics and they're all kind of brought together in this one sweeping epic narrative that you play out over the course of uh, i would say about 20 hours and it was it was a good game. Uh, it's something that I got on sale. I bought it for twenty bucks, and it was definitely worth those twenty dollars. And it was not a revolutionary open world game, but it was a good one of those. Mm-hmm. I think kind of in the same sense as uh, Days Gone, right? You know, it's like yeah. yeah, does it reinvent the wheel? No, but it's good. And I think that Spider-Man's real strength, uh, at least the game, I should say, not Spider-Man, the character, um, <laughs> but the game's real strength is the uh, traversal. I think it's mm. really a lot of fun to move around the city, uh, to use the webs, uh, to use uh, you know his abilities 
Uh, it's really natural. It's really fluid. And it doesn't take a lot of uh, practice mm -hmm. in order to get down pretty well and to feel really cool doing it. So uh, thumbs up for me for Spider-Man. It was the fighting in Spider-Man that eventually got me down. Mm. Which is weird because the Arkham games, I, 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 I got into a rhythm. I love the way they do collectibles in Spider-Man as well because I'm not, yes. I'm not a big deep down... I'm not a comics guy, but I really liked the collectibles and they were super interesting. And I get the impression the comics people also liked them. I think it's impressive. Yes. You know, you know, Days Gone is a weird thing because I was playing it last night and it occurred to me, I was such a, a jerk about Red Dead Redemption 2. And I was so <laughs> down on it and so frustrated by it. And Days Gone is the same thing, really. Oh, really? Just a different setting. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, there's. I mean, there's. There's some nice. There's some nice presentation stuff, but you know, there's a mini map and there's objectives to complete. And I'm still at the phase early in the game where I'm very slowly building something with one camp and one group of people, and it's pretty obvious it's going to break out into wider stuff soon. And later in the game, I'll uncover new areas, just like you do in the Red Dead games. And Red Dead Redemption 2, I just got annoyed about it and angry about it. And, and, and Days Gone, I'm like, oh, good. A game I didn't care about. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm br being brutally unfair. I'm being brutally unfair on Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, but then that was... Well, Red, Red Dead 2 was supposed to be, you know... It was supposed to, to be a masterwork. To reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I can I relate to that. I feel like I was a little bit too hard on... Zelda Breath of the Wild because people acted as though he reinvented the wheel but it was it was a good game it was a good open yeah. world um, I think we're too tough on games sometimes yeah. sometimes sometimes yeah not often um, we're living in a golden the, age I don't even know how to deal with it you know yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah um, and then the other thing I've been playing is I've been playing a lot of Civilization 6 uh, and in particular I got the uh, Rise and Fall DLC, and this is a DLC that has you playing a traditional civilization game, but you go through periods where your empire is ascendant uh, in a oh. golden age, and then you also go through periods where you're in a dark age, where you have some uh, detrimental effects applied to your civilization, like, you know, for instance, your warriors are less effective. Or your rate of growth is less, uh, you discover new technologies slower, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that the purpose of this DLC is to really kind of replicate a lot of the older mods that you saw created by users in the Civilization series. Uh, in particular, there was kind of a famous version of Rise and Fall uh, developed for Civilization Four that I used to play back in the day. And... You know, kind of the idea behind the Rise and Fall mod and this DLC is to make it so that there is a bit more of a, I guess you could say, historical realism to a playthrough of Civilization in the sense that, mm -hmm. you know, historically speaking, civilizations go through periods where they are in the ascendance or they are uh, kind of falling behind. And this DLC, it attempts that, but I think, interestingly, what it does best is it kind of gives you in-game goalpost to reach so you know usually in a civilization game your your ultimate goal is to win to reach one of the victory conditions but what the rise and fall dlc adds in is that you can try to aim to have a golden age uh in 20 or 30 turns and in order huh. to do that you've got to reach certain goalposts uh and accumulate certain points in order to get to that golden age so it gives you kind of a sense of a 
a game within the game. Um, and what I've found has been really a lot of fun is playing uh, the the game in Rise and Fall is broken up into ages. So you go, you know, Golden Age, Dark Age, Golden Age, Dark Age, etc. Depending on how you play. And what I found is like in a playthrough, you could do one age in about an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes, you know, depending on how you were playing. And it was really kind of nice to have a broken up period for a civilization game, which otherwise could last, you know, four hours. And, you know, you suddenly right. look up at the clock and it's 2 a.m. <laughs> so I, I liked it for that. But I think in terms of historical realism, it falls short. And in particular, a lot of the mechanics within Rise and Fall don't feel like they have much consequence to them. So, for instance, you feel pretty powerful when you're in a golden age, but when you're in a dark age, I feel like the detrimental points against your civilization don't hit quite as hard as they probably should. Um, and there's also a new mechanic within Rise and Fall that is involves uh, having uh, city governors and then also a loyalty system for your cities, which has been in previous civilization games, or at least the loyalty system. And I kind of feel like I could just completely ignore those two systems, the governors or the loyalty system. And I'm, I'm playing, I think I'm playing in again, the middle difficulty for civilization. That's what I usually do. So it's not too terribly tough, but it is a little distressing to have all this hoopla related to the DLC and its new mechanics and feeling mm -hmm. as though a lot of those mechanics can be completely ignored. Well, you're, you're an old Civ hand then. That's what, that's what, that's what, <laughs> that's what the real Civ fans do. <laughs> I know, I know what you mean though. It's funny. I just wonder, it sounds great, but, uh, in Civ almost yield to the, uh, to the one more turn mechanic like you know mm -hmm. player mechanics so it's tough like how do they handle a dark age because they they have to be very careful about it not being fun yes but if you play a I bunch think... of save you kind of want it you almost yes. want it to be a bit yes. less fun yeah well that was definitely the idea behind the original rise and fall dlc or the mod for civilization 4 and that was the first time i had encountered it it might have been in previous civs but you know, was to make it more difficult, to make it more arduous, and to make it feel as though you were playing through the kind of rise and fall of different civilizations. And this game has the kind of the look of that. It has the kind of necessary mechanics. But like I said, the Dark Age doesn't have the consequences that you would want. But conversely, like you say, you know, players don't like to be tripped up. Uh, mm -hmm. especially with a civilization game. And, you know, this is uh, a founding principle of civilization going back to the development of the first game, uh, you know, to bring it back to the strong library materials. Uh, some of the digital files in Bruce Shelley's collection talk about uh, the development of civilization, and in particular coming out of the development of Railroad Tycoon, uh, which immediately preceded it. And one of the things that uh, Bruce Shelley had been working on with Sid Meier was a system by which you would encounter uh, occasional difficulties, uh, misfortunes, uh, natural disasters within the original Civilization game. And they did playtests with this model in place, and they found that players just hated it. They hated feeling <laughs> as though the computer was the one having the fun and kind of making right. a mess of their intricately created empire or their intricately <laughs> created uh, civilization. 
And, you know, I feel like I, I live through a version of this almost every day. Um, you know, my daughter is really into uh, Legos and uh, she's really into uh, play sets and doll houses, anything where you kind of recreate an environment. And she's four years old and she now has a one-year-old brother who likes to just come through and just make a huge mess of all of those plans. And I feel like that that's <laughs> kind of the idea behind civilization yeah. in a nutshell is to make it so that you know a one-year-old or the computer in this case doesn't come along and wreck all of your plans. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, it's funny, like Civ was such a huge game and I feel some people, I feel I played it a bit like Minecraft type thing where I would often put it on, I think Chieftain is like the easiest setting. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to build like a world government, you know, <laughs> I'm going to hang out and do it, you know, and um, versus kind of the more competitive element and get all these different kind of constituencies of the game. But um, yeah, well, Civ 6 is really good. That's my, yes. that's my... That's my contribution. That's my critical response. So, but so, but so overall, but so, but it sounds like you think Rise and Fall is worth it. Um, is that is that? A, a ish? I I would say for me, I enjoy having the goalposts to okay. aim for within a longer Civ game. But at the same time, if you're going in it for an extra challenge, you're not going to find it. Um, so I'm hoping to move on maybe in a month or so, move mm -hmm. on to the other DLC, Gathering Storm, mm -hmm. which has natural disasters, which has things that like pollution that you have to deal with. And maybe that'll add some more challenge to it, I'm hoping. But, mm -hmm. you know, I really I love the idea of them making an official version of the Rise and Fall mod as a DLC. And I was really hopeful for this one. But. I think in terms of what I really wanted, which is like the hardcore version of Civilization, I didn't necessarily get that. So Well, you know, Bob. Maybe um, next time. At the time of recording, and sorry if when this goes up, it's over. The Humble Bundle has an amazing deal where you can get all of Crusader King 2's DLC, all of it. Mm. And um, it's obviously a different kind of a game, but I think Crusader Kings 2, for example, the way the plague works in that game is really good because it's just the latest damn thing that's gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you're you're pretty rarely lording it over people in Crusader Kings 2. Um, but then you do lose that wonderfully compulsive Civ feel. So it's, it's yeah. tough to know. It's tough to know where to land between those two. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not I'm not looking for the Dark Souls of civilization. But, <laughs> you know, I, 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 wanna, I want some speed bumps <laughs> along the way. You know, uh, not a complete reversal, but, you know, some some hiccups in the long narrative. Um, all right. Well, that's all I got. Would yeah, anything else for you? You anything else? Um, I, I I think yeah. I think until next time. I, there's there's yeah. nothing on the horizon. Class is about to begin here in Kentucky, in Center College. So you're going to get to work on your your book project. Busy <laughs> few weeks ahead for both of us. I suppose. Yeah. I my uh, uh, school uh, Louisiana Tech doesn't start until this time next month. So. Oh wow. I still got. I still got some time, which nice. is great. I love it. That's one benefit of the quarter system is I get to watch all of you people on the semester system just <laughs> struggling right now with <laughs> syllabi and class prep and book ordering, and I'm just sitting pretty wondering about uh, Civilization games and Spider-Man <laughs> and all the other crazy stuff that fills the head of a, a middle-aged historian these days. Um <laughs> Well, so I guess that that does it for this episode of History Respawn. John, thank you so much. For Thanks, Bob. Me. Always fun every time. 
If you enjoy our work on History Respawn, please consider supporting us on Patreon. I, I recently went through and I updated some of our Patreon goals, and I'd really like to get to a higher level of support, uh, mainly so I can give back some money to the wonderful scholarly guests uh, who join us on the show. Um, so please, uh, again, the website is www.patreon.com forward slash history respond and uh, give what you can, uh, as much as you can. Uh, and until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.